Welcome to episode 18 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Yeah, it was quite obvious. So sometimes people will look up to the ceiling, they'll go into a sort of a, a sort of a phase of being disconnected and then they'll just start talking in a different voice, um, presenting in a different way. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we've got this bonus conversation with Dr. Melissa Hart from Heartfelt Psychology about dissociative identity disorders. If you haven't listened to episode 17, you'll miss most of the context, so we suggest that you start there. When we wrapped up that last conversation, the last podcast, on emotion-focused therapy with Melissa, we had this conversation, and it was just so interesting, and we happened to still be recording, that I asked Dr. Hart's permission to post it and we've decided to run it as a bonus episode. This podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, which is an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. And if you'd like to ask Dr. Hart a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au. We'll do our best to answer it in a follow-up Q&A session. Okay, let's dive in. So I realize dissociative identity disorders, or DID, is not exactly the same topic as emotion-focused therapy, but I can't help but think of it when considering severe emotional injury. Have you had any experience with DID? Yeah, lots, actually. And I was going to mention dissociation as part of a trauma issue, um, but it just didn't seem appropriate. But yes, I have. It's very complex to work with. Um, and so it shows really, really severe trauma. So what has happened to the personality is that it's like if you've got parts of yourself that you've sort of, you know, locked away, memory doesn't act like a, oh, I'm going to forget this thing and I'm going to forget that. It tends to have this blanket sort of approach. So what people do is they tend to forget all their childhood rather than parts of it. And with DID, because the trauma is so bad, it's like not only do they forget, but they compartmentalise part of their their personality or their experiences into these pockets which are sort of lost to other parts of their own experience, if that makes sense. So they might have four or five or six or ten traumatic experiences that are sort of locked away in these compartments. And there's all sorts of different ideas about how to work with that. One is used to be the old days of let's try and integrate these parts into the person but now these days it's about let's recognize what the parts are see if we can find communication with them what was their role why did they compartmentalize themselves off at that particular time and how can we process the trauma that sits in that experience of that person at that in that compartment so to speak very complex I have worked with a few people with DID but I've chosen not to it's a very complex long journey but I supervise people who work with people with DID and there are some really good specialists EFT is good with it but I think there are probably other ways that are great is that just curiosity or do you know someone who's got DID no not not personally um, but I was aware of it and to my knowledge it's caused by an intense emotional injury right so I guess I just connected the two um but if, if you're keen to go down this rabbit hole, let's just take a step back. Could you maybe tell our listeners what is dissociative identity disorders and um, do you maybe have a case study that you've experienced within your scope of work? So the client that I worked with um, had a very, very complex history of trauma 
And as a child, she had been sexually abused by many, many people. There was also ritual abuse. Um, it's the most severe form of torture, you know, trauma and torture that you can come across. Also, there was no safety in the family. The parents were, I think the mother was traumatised by the father. The father was sexually abusing her and the other children. And all of these got sort of segmented off. So she would often come to me as a two or three, you know, like she'd be in the room in this, a session and she'd be like a two or three-year-old. And so she'd want to be close. She would talk in a baby voice. She would be, you know, and sometimes you think, you know, is this being put on or is this real? But because I knew about her history, um, it was very clear to me that this is quite real. And so she needed me to be a bit like a, a surrogate parent to start to sort of heal. Then at home, she would email me emails about that she can't exist anymore. She wants to commit suicide. Um, she was, you know, lost and um, she was with her husband who was actually a very nice man, but she kept projecting onto him that he was trying to kill her and trying to rape her and all these sorts of things. She also had two sons and she was actually quite a good mother, which was very interesting in the midst of all of this. Um, but she would often then come to me and say, oh, look, I don't think I'm safe with my children. I don't know how to, um, to function with them. So that was another part. And then she would talk about her work. Um, she worked for, you know, set up a DID um, uh, self-help group, which was quite successful for a while. But then she got too entwined with, with the people and she couldn't work out who was safe and who wasn't safe. And so there'd be these very complex stories coming from different sort of parts of herself trying to, and it's like, it just does your head in. It's who am I seeing today? What, who, who's gonna turn up? She also had very dark parts of her that um, were quite murderous um, and who probably, you know, had potential to kill somebody if, if, but she was quite a pacifist lady. So it didn't feel like she would ever hurt anyone. It was always very concerning about the suicide ideation because is this something she's going to act on? But she also told me that it was something she needed to have up her sleeve because the torture of, you know, living this life, she needed some outlet, you know, constantly voices in her head. Um, she couldn't make sense of a lot of the time, found it very hard to quieten the voices, very hard to ground herself in her body. Um, would come up sometimes in completely different clothes, um, present in really different ways. Uh, so yeah, it's not a not an easy trip at all. It's yeah. Did you ever experience in your clinical practice a direct transition point in your presence where that that person might flip from one personality to another? Yes. So what, sometimes she'd come in as this sort of child, then she'd turn into the sort of the mother, the sensible mother, and then she'd get quite vitriolic and really nasty. So you can see the transitions happening, um, and. It was, yeah, it was quite obvious. So sometimes people will look up to the ceiling, they'll go into a sort of a, um, a sort of a phase of being disconnected and then they'll just start talking in a different voice, um, presenting in a different way. Uh, yes, it's, it's really horrific and just shows you the, the incredible resilience of the human spirit to, to want to survive that um, because that person could have died any time under the, the trauma that she was experiencing and the abuse that she was experiencing. And the hard part is to know how to adequately help 
So what I found is that I just had to be very present to each of the different parts. And I think she had some names for some of them. I didn't get too caught up in that, but I do know that there are uh, one woman that I've been supervising for some time. She found oh, about 60 parts in the client with DID and she had the names and the characteristics. Um, oh, and often there's a lot of cult um, and spiritual abuse stuff that goes on. So the client that my supervisee had was someone um, had somehow brainwashed her and would put different parts in her. So in the middle of the night, she would just get up out of the house and go out and just go and drive somewhere to a parking lot or somewhere. And she had no idea why she was doing it or the husband didn't even know that she had children as well and she was just off. And then she'd come back and, you know, it was just bizarre. The behavior Because that particular personality had been requested or programmed conditioned to have a certain response i mean that almost sounds like sci-fi it does and this woman also had a programming to commit suicide if certain things were going to happen she was programmed to commit suicide now do we believe all this well how do we know you can like do you take it seriously well i tend to because i don't want to shut somebody down and sort of minimize their experience but you have to also keep your sort of clinical hat on so to speak and try and go okay what's possible with this client how can we help this client what you know how can we minimize the amount of distress that this client is going through i heard somewhere by the grapevine so this is a fact check please um, that one of the approaches to dealing with did is to identify the personalities and try and kill them off and destroy them so that you're left with the the core person yeah, no, that's not, that used to be, I think, an idea, um, but not anymore because you actually would be killing off part of the person's experiences. So this is what I mean about getting to know the different aspects and helping the client to recognise um, why they were there. It was a survival technique. You needed to do this. This is actually important that your psyche broke these parts of you off into and splintered you into parts because that's the only way your psyche and your yourself could stay sane because otherwise you'd go start raving bonkers and mad um and the one of the other ideas was to try and integrate parts and some of them do get integrated um it's it's like they go oh my role is no longer needed i feel comfortable and just heading back into the um there's a primary altar i can't remember what the actual primary one is but there's a central um, personality that's the main one but yeah killing them off that's that's what they fear the parts that they will be killed off and that actually makes them more intensely present and more determined to hang on for their identity because their identity has meaning to them i'm here because i'm the protector or i'm here because i'm the person that's going to kill you if we need to die and i'm the one here that you know is looking after your three-year-old and you know so they've actually got really strong functions so they're not just there because they shouldn't be there. They're there. We've all got them. The irony of it is it's an extreme version of the parts that we already have inside of us. You know, we have the wounded child. We have the sort of recalcitrant um, teenager. We have the young adult. You know, we've all got parts, but we don't have them split off. They're part of us. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's such a terrifying and scary but, but fascinating space. 
I remember reading an article once that claimed that the U.S. had done some research at one point, and this is maybe down the path of, I hope, conspiracy theories. Gosh, I hope this is just conspiracy theories. I'm a conspiracy theorist, so don't worry. I'm happy to go there. (laughs) But the thought was that um, the, the line of research was, could we create a perfect spy that was conditioned like, the example you oh, gave. One identity, yeah. Right. Yeah. And they, they didn't know, even un, under interrogation, they could, you know, they could pass all the tests. They could pass lie detectors or someone who's an expert at deception because they didn't I know that, that they that were supposed to. Happen. I believe that actually does happen. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Sihan Sihan, the um, assassin of Robert Kennedy, was apparently a potential candidate for that because he couldn't remember it. And there was an event where prior to the execution, uh, the video footage of him shows there's a lady with a polka dot dress who pokes him on the, or pinches him on the shoulder. And it's that sort of thing that might, is postulated, have facilitated the triggering of personalities. Is that outlandish? No, I don't think it is because I think brainwashing happens all the time. I mean, we're seeing on a grand scale at the moment with all the uh, materialism and our, our capitalism you know, we're machines, buy this, buy that. Even when you don't need it, still buy it, buy it, buy it, you know. So in a smaller scale, we're being brainwashed all the time. A lot of military are brainwashed into becoming killing machines. The problem is they don't know how to reverse it. So these people come back from war, for example, and they don't know how to rehabilitate them. So it's all very well to make the perfect spy or the perfect killing machine but the toll is terrible. Um, in fact, someone was speaking to me about this recently that I don't know whether it was the 80s or something that they were trying to do the perfect spy, but most of them could never rehabilitate. And so they kill themselves. And so it's sort of a, um, a single experiment, an end of one, you know, let's get this person to do all these things, but then we can't resolve how to return them back to normal and it sends people mad you know like to live that fearful life but yes i was always really intrigued by that and that's why the the mind and um trauma are so interesting to me yeah i i um there's a documentary on netflix at the moment that talks about how social media is used to influence our decision making and it's it's um it's pretty profound it's like without you even realizing it the Social Dilemma. Okay, that's good. Yeah, because I'd like to watch that. I, I'm very interested. And I think a lot of my work indirectly is helping people to have an antidote to the conditioning that they're no good because we all have this sense of I'm not good enough. It's pervasive amongst our culture, especially in the mm. white world. And, oh, and so much in the black too. But there's something, because we're more individualists than our black counterparts, they, they're more collective. But when they try to individuate, you know, we're all left with this I'm not good enough piece. And so what I think I'm trying to do is help people recognise, yes, I'm not good enough and I'm good enough in a way that helps us to overcome the narcissistic tendencies that's so there and so prevalent and the humility that I'm not good enough brings. So it doesn't actually have to become a, a sort of a flaw. It's like, oh, you know, it's like when you called me doctor before and I went, oh, I don't know what to do with that. It's like I can still be a doctor and be very proud of being a doctor, but my personality says actually I'm, I, I'm known by the name Melissa, you know, that's who I am. So there's something about being able to integrate those parts of 
I'm not good enough and I'm good enough. So it's an end and situation. So I feel my work is helping clients identify it's, it's the same as all this lockdown stuff. Um, I don't like it and I understand it. So that gives a lot of peace of mind to people that they can be as rebellious as they like because I'm rebellious. I'm always pushing the edges of all sorts of envelopes all the time, always have. But I know how to comply in the fact that I've now become a doctor of clinical and counselling psychology um, and yet I forge forward with my own ideas about good therapy and what it looks like and uh, and the research that's in it. So there's something about gaining that ability to be a rebel and a conformist because <laughs> that was my big split. Yeah, you can't push the envelope and not be a little bit rebel. Anyone trying to develop a field of science needs to be a little bit rebellious, right? Oh, I have to be. <laughs> but you mentioned the question, am I good enough? I'm sure that that's a question that would consciously and subconsciously sit with most of our listeners or most people, right? So isn't it just part of being human? Now, clients that have got trauma are way behind the eight ball, like 50,000 miles behind the eight ball. So they've had it indoctrinated into their brain. I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm shit. I am a horrible human. I don't you know, deserve to exist. I am so much scum that my father abuses me and my mother ignores me, you know. That, and so they've got to then therapeutically start to just build that basic framework of, yes, there's something worthy about me just because I exist, mm. um, which it takes a huge amount of effort to do. And that's one of the things that my work helps people to start to slowly build up that sense of, yes, you are worthy. You deserve to be seen. You deserve to be loved. You deserve to be connected with and you deserve to feel safe in your life. And when people don't have those needs met, that's the sort of core functionality of pathology, if you like. So it's about going back and saying, okay, how can we help you at the very grassroots to get in touch with your emotional pain, connect with what your needs were, find those primary emotions, and let's give some action to those primary emotions. So when you were angry but weren't able to express it, express it now because that means you're worthy of having an opinion or having a, a body or a life or an existence. Yeah. So you have to be able to have a certain level of self-worth before you are permitting yourself to express an emotion. Yes. Yeah. So it's almost like a, it's a bit of a Maslow's triangle, isn't it? You need to. Oh, perfectly Maslow's, all Maslow. Yes, you've got to be fed and watered and you've got to feel like you have, you know, those basic things and then the, the needs of belonging and feeling safe and they are completely necessary. And that's why Maslow's is quite an interesting um, idea that you have to sort of have these basic levels before you can reach some sort of enlightenment or awareness or self-reflection ability. If you're in survival mode, you're not going to be thinking, oh, I'm just contemplating on the reason why I exist when you haven't even yeah. got food on the table. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Like you can't, you can't do that. So this is what my work does as many other therapists that I work particularly from this perspective. We can't have those ground roots of feeling, um, you know, we can't move from that ground unless we've got safety, connectedness and a sense of um, belonging. And then you can start to think about, oh, okay, all those grander, you know, ideas. Yeah. Very important. Okay, that's it for today. Coming up next, we hear an as-lived experience of someone who suffered from an extreme flight phobia and who used emotion-focused therapy to almost, not entirely, but almost completely recover. Tune in for that next time.
The purpose of this podcast is to have open chats with these professionals and is not designed to be used as individualized therapy. Please take it as general information only and visit the show notes for personalized support if you need it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and a comment. We read every single comment and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. It's also the best way for us to promote these conversations and make this podcast more discoverable on all the podcatching services. Thank you so much.